night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Gilly McMillan, New York Times bestselling author and author of Odd Child Out. In 2015, New York Times bestselling author Gilly McMillan dazzled breezers with her debut novel, What She Knew, a thriller that was named one of the best mysteries of the year, nominated for Edgar and Thriller Awards. Readers will now be captivated by Macmillan's new novel, Odd Child Out, another whip-smart domestic suspense about secrets families tell one another, packed with emotional depth, twists and turns, and masterfully created characters. Uh, Gilly Macmillan, once again, proving herself a strong voice in suspense fiction, is featured in the Huffington Post, New York Daily News, and publishes weekly. Welcome to the show, Gilly. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. This is, you've written several novels, obviously, New York Times bestselling author. So why write this novel? What motivated you to write it? Uh, to write another New York Times bestselling motivated- uh, book? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be nice. Um, yeah. I was very motivated to bring back the detective, Detective Jim Clemo, who featured in my debut novel, What She Knew. So he returns in Odd Child Out. Uh, he had a bit of a rough time in What She Knew, so I felt that I ought to give him a new case, and that's how the idea for Odd Child Out developed in the first instance. What's the process of writing a novel? You know, I'm a social worker, social worker with a microphone. I sort of like to get behind the, the psychological stuff that, particularly when you're writing novels uh, behind authors, what really goes through your head? I mean, how do you get yourself motivated? I've heard you say that you have to really have very intense concentration. You really have to concentrate. Um, so how do you get yourself up to do it, to, to, really, to start the novel? I tend to start a novel with a, with a really strong idea. It's usually an idea I've been thinking about for a while. It's something that won't leave me alone. And one day I will sit down and begin to put it on paper, whether that's the voice of a particular character or a particular scene that I think is really compelling. I will start there. And that's when the kind of intensity and the concentration kicks in and I start to get really, really deep into the novel and into the characters and really start to create the world that you have to create to, to make a novel work. So then what do you do? All right, you're, you, you, you get in yourself in this position psychologically. Do you lock yourself up mm-hmm. in your room? <laughs> do you, what, what do you do so to sort of protect yourself so that you can, sort of, so that you can stay focused and, and, and continue with it? Well, when I first started, I, I locked myself away physically. I have an office in the basement, so I come downstairs. I have a I have a big family. I have three children, two dogs. It's all going on in my house. So over the years, I have learned to just make do with a very good pair of headphones and a laptop. And I can work almost anywhere these days, so long as I have those two things. And I just the process of writing shuts everything else out. Um, but if I needed peace and quiet, I would never have finished, probably never finish my first novel. <laughs> right, so it's, it's not a perfect world. It's not, as you say, it's not peace and quiet. But are there any, are there no. any things? No. Okay, so let's say the noise doesn't disrupt you, and you have three kids, you have a big family. But what can disrupt, mm-hmm. disrupt you? Like you do, you start writing something, and then all of a sudden, I mean, they call it writer's block, or maybe there are other names for it. But are, are there things that sort of can get in your way, and then you can't go on, and then you have to sort of get back on track? I think I think the biggest thing is if you lose your nerve. Um, writing a novel, it takes about a year, and you have to really believe in what you're doing, in your characters, in your plot. Uh, you have to believe it's going to work, and inevitably there are days when your belief wobbles. Um, you think, oh, I'm not sure people want to read this, etc. All of our confidence wobbles um, on a regular basis, um, I, I believe. And, and those are the tough bits. Those are the days where you have to sort of really go, well, it's okay, I'm just going to write it anyway, and if it's terrible, I'll fix it in a second draft. 
Um, so that's what that's what sometimes gives me a hiccup. Well, the bar is high for you. Right? I, I keep going back to it, but once you've written a New York Times bestseller, the bar is really high. So, it, I mean, it would seem to me that each time you sat down to write a book or uh, a novel, that it would be like, well, I, I, I want, you know, I want to write another New York Times bestselling uh, uh, novel. Is, is that something that goes through your head? Yeah, you definitely, I, I definitely feel the, I'm not, maybe not pressure's not quite the right word, but, but maybe the expectation to produce something very, very good. And actually, I'd, I'd try and shut that out, um, because I think it would be a little crippling to be thinking about that every day. And I'd try and just write the kind of book that I would like to read. I'm a big, um, reader, I have been all my life, and I love crime books, I love thrillers, I love family drama, and so I try and think, well, would I turn the page, would I keep reading this book, what would I find compelling as a reader, and just use that as the as the um, kind of rule by which I write every day, because if you think about all the other stuff, it can be overwhelming. So that stuff gets in the way. What about your family? I mean, you, you mentioned a big family, three kids. Uh, a husband, mm-hmm. how do they fit into the picture besides trying to put your headphones on so you can concentrate? But I mean, in terms of support. <laughs> they they are really supportive. My family are, are terrific. Um, they also take up a huge amount of my time as any working mother will, I'm sure, relate to. Um, so, you know, I couldn't do it without them, but there's sometimes the reason it's difficult to do it. So, you know, there's a push and pull there, but but ultimately they are absolutely fantastically supportive and proud of the books and proud to have a, a mom who's been able to start a new career later in life. So let's talk about that. You started a career later in life. What were you doing before and uh, how'd you make this transition to being a, an, an author? I, I Many years ago, I trained as an art historian, and I began working in art galleries um, in London. Um, and then I had a baby, and we moved away from the city because it was expensive. And we set up home, and I had two more babies, and I stopped work to look after them. So I was a stay-at-home mother for, for many years. And it was after my youngest started school, I had a period of time where I knew I needed to get a job. We needed money, um, but I knew I didn't need to get one right away. I had a few months uh, where we could get away with it. So I thought I'm going to use that time to try and write a book because I I absolutely love reading. It's my passion. And uh, I wrote a thousand words a day until the first draft of what she knew was finished. And very fortunately, um, it then went off on an amazing journey. And I've been able to have a full-time career as a writer now. I mean, that ex- experience that you had doesn't usually happen, or at least to many of the authors that I've spoken to. I mean, they get when they decide they want to <laughs> sit down <clears throat> and write something, there is just so many disappointments, so many rejections, and sometimes... Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that wasn't your experience? I mean, you just decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and then suddenly you write this book, a thriller, and it gets to what she knew, one of the best mysteries of the year. Um it was a little less straightforward than that. I did have my, I had a few rejections early on, but I was very lucky to get an agent quickly. I think that's often where people get the bulk of their rejections. Um, and I had a few for sure. Yeah, I didn't get away scot-free. Um, but yeah, I think I think my process has been smooth. I, it, it, It's been the most extraordinary thing. I didn't think it would be that smooth. I was fully prepared to sort of, you know, I was braced for, for more for more turndowns. Um, but uh, I'm sure they'll come later on if they have if I haven't experienced them now. Um, it, it was just a lucky time. It was a lucky, smooth process for me. I, I mean, I guess there always is a little bit of luck, right? You know, talent and luck and timing and all of those kinds of things. And I, apparently, you must have had it all. Uh, well, let's get into the book. Okay, it's a novel. It's um, let's. I don't like to give away. The, we don't want to give away the the whole you know the whole story. So, uh, but give mm-hmm. us kind of an overview of what the what the book is about. 
the book Our Child Out is about a very intense friendship between two 15-year-old boys. Uh, Noah Sadler is a frail and fairly privileged boy. Uh, Abdi Mahad is a Somalian refugee. He has a scholarship to a private school here in Bristol, uh, the city I live in and where I set my books. And that's where the boys meet and they form a really intense friendship. Um, until one night when Noah is found floating unconscious in a very seedy section of um, the city's canal. And Abdi, who is found standing at the side of the canal, cannot or will not tell anybody what happened. And that's where the police get involved and the tension ratchets up as the reader finds out how they got to that point and also how much more peril that they might now be in um, and their families. So in other words, some of the topics that you're covering or that you that you delve into in this book is, um, and, and one of the things that, like, how well do you really know the people that you love? That's one of the questions that comes up, I think. And uh, what happens to your secrets in the darkest of times? These are kind of the kinds of issues that are that that you um, that are covered in the novel. Um, so let's talk about that because I think you, how would that translate perhaps into our everyday lives? I mean, like you know, your uh, like family secrets, for instance. A family secrets. I, I mean, it's a minefield, isn't it? But I think yes. I suppose the first thing that that comes to my mind is that we sometimes tell secrets to protect other people, and I wonder if um, many family secrets aren't kept for that for that very reason, um, whether there's something that's happened in the past that people are ashamed of or that they feel would be disruptive to the current status of the family. Um, and, you know, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because secrets can be lies or white lies, um, but ultimately if somebody's keeping a secret, you don't know everything about them. I mean, you maybe ask yourself, can I trust them? What, can we sort of bring you back to your own family? How does this fit into that? Either your family, your, your your children, your husband, your experiences in your own family with family secrets, or in your family of origin, um, you know, where you grew up with your own parents or your own siblings. I think what I always think of is my maternal grandmother, and she was a terrific character. Um, she uh, grew up during the war, um, and she uh, told me many, many stories when she was very elderly and in her last year of life, which really shocked and surprised me. She became very open, as people sometimes do um, at that time of life. And I learned so much about her own upbringing, which had been in Ireland, and her kind of younger years about men she'd loved and places she'd been and people she'd met and romances she shouldn't have had. And I just, it just really got me thinking about all the other things I, I probably don't know about my family. And it's interesting, sometimes you base a lot of your choices and what you do on things you don't know about or you had no, you, you know, that you thought were true and weren't true or you didn't have information because, you know, as I'm experiencing similar things with my own mother who was, is uh, aging and sharing those same kinds of things with me and I'm, I'm, I'm completely, totally surprised about people that I thought I knew and whether it's family or friends or her friends and, as you say, romances and all of those kinds of things. And it, it does seem to happen as people it can happen, let's say, as they get towards the end of their lives, um, which is understandable. Uh, and also a lot of the people that I know in my own family that my mother talks about, the, the people are dead. So, you know, I guess it's safer to talk about them. But, um, yeah, family secrets um, and how they sort of, they do, I think, dominate most most families. Um, but uh, so let's talk I about. I agree, yeah, and I think ahead. they can yeah. be especially shocking sometimes because you they maybe reveal something about somebody who you took a lot of advice from, and maybe you behaved a certain way because you were told to, and then you discover, well, that person actually didn't in their lives, and they can really turn things upside down in in very unexpected ways. Yeah, no, that's so true. And so I don't know how then 
that would help having that information, knowing that, what would we do in terms of uh, how we make our choices? I guess, like, because if we knowing that we don't have a lot of information, that there are these family secrets or all of these kinds of things, then how do we sort of organize our own lives? Would we do it differently? Should we do it differently? Oh, that's a that's a difficult one because you don't know what you don't know. Um, that's right. So yeah, it's. I think we can only go on the way we we are really, and just brace ourselves when people are ready to share, and hope that it's nothing that's actually properly devastating. Well, let's say with your in your own case. Okay, so you 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 know your grandmother revealed a lot of secrets, family secrets. Um, how did that specifically impact your choices in terms of what you are doing and what you decided? to do in terms of like writing your novels I think it made me braver because secrets are often to do with things that people don't want to confess to because they're frowned upon Um, and I think my grandmother revealing that she'd done some of these things made me think well you know you only live once and just go for it. Just try and write that book. Just try and deal with issues in your books that are are real and affect proper families. I'm very interested in writing about families um, and and people who are so so called normal. And 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 I don't actually believe there's a normal, but people living regular lives who are struck by lightning um, in some form or another, be that a, a diagnosis of a, a disease or a, a crime happening to them. I'm interested in what happens to them going forward and how they change and how they deal with it. And I think the whole issue of secrets and my grandmother confiding in me made me braver about doing that. Uh, don't you think that most families or all families at some point, whether they acknowledge it or not, and you say, and we'll put normal in quotes because I don't think there is a normal family, mm-hmm. but people who seem to just sort of be going mm-hmm. on with their lives and there are no ne- yeah. seemingly no catastrophes. But isn't there always something if you live long enough or if you, I mean, in any family that's going to be, you know, a crisis or some kind of a, I don't want to necessarily catastrophe, but that one has to deal with, whether it's illness or money or finances or divorce or something to do with children um, so that I I don't think anybody gets any family actually gets left out of that picture no I I don't think they do either I agree with that but I but what's interesting is I think I don't know about in the US but here in the UK people maybe don't always talk about that stuff or share that stuff it's a little bit I, I think taboo is too strong a word but Perhaps in this social media age where all we share online is our victories and our um, best days, we sometimes forget that other people do have those bad days, weeks, months, and years. And I think it's interesting to explore in fiction how those things really make us feel deep down on a day-to-day basis. Uh, which obviously what you do in your novels and your fictional novels what about with your own family what about with your with, with your kids boys girls or how old are they oh so i have a 19 year old daughter and then i have two sons who are 17 and 13 and yeah we try and be very very open with our kids we do try and share stuff and talk about stuff because i think otherwise they won't be equipped to deal with it when they're adults and in doing that, do your boy? I mean, because your kids are older. Uh, would you say nineteen, seventeen, and fifteen? Thirteen is the youngest. Thirteen, yeah. So, are any of them? Do you see any kind of? Do they have talents as like their mother that they're going to go into? You know, writing uh, or. <laughs> Uh, they, my daughters, well, they're all good writers, actually, uh, which is really nice for me. Um, yeah, they all have their own skills. My daughter's studying language at university. My um, middle son, um, actually, he's on the television. Um, I don't know if you ever watched the show called The Midwife. It's a BBC oh, show. I think I've and seen every episode. In the US. So he plays the son of Dr. Turner in Call The Midwife. Now I'll have to go back and revisit it because I have seen every You'll have to the episode, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'll have to look for him. Well, yeah, that's great. So, so you are. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So that's his his uh, his um, thing that he does, and he's a very good musician. And my youngest kid is just terrific as well. He's whip smart, and I I think he's going to be a a wonderful wonderful adult. So yeah, they they have their things, they have their challenges, and uh, they really do um, inform my writing. And also, they they're very critical readers. <laughs> That was my next question. Do you allow them to read as your novel, as the as you're writing? Do they read it and critique it, or do you wait till the end, till you're finished? Uh, my hus my husband reads as I'm writing. Uh, I think he probably gets sick of it um, because yeah. he gives me feedback, so he reads stuff over and over again. Um, my kids read the books when they're finished, but none of them have read Odd Child Out yet. So well, it's hot off the press. So they, <laughs> and what happens? Mm-hmm. How do you feel when you're? You know, I have three boys, and of course, each one is mm-hmm. different and unique. Um, and I find that in certain areas, I can accept a criticism from one where it's maybe more biting from the other. I mean, do you have that those kinds of experiences? Is it more difficult to accept a criticism from um, from one? Uh, you know, from uh, any of your children, whereas others, you know, you can be more open with and, and feel more supported? Yeah, uh, yes, I think it's, it's, that's a really interesting question because it, the, the different um, dynamics between you all and the family is, is absolutely fascinating. I definitely, uh, you know, I have to brace myself a little more for when my, my youngest son uh, has read something uh, because he is very forthright if he doesn't <laughs> like something um, but actually he's often right as well which kind of doesn't make it any easier <laughs> so he's the one he's the the sort of the one that uh, is the he, I don't want to say he criticizes you more but he's, he's the critic yeah <laughs> yeah he's the critic yeah well that's a good thing though I guess yeah. if, if it gets by him it's going to hopefully get by the the critic critics right yeah that's what I'm hoping <laughs> <laughs> so we only have a few minutes left so you know this I don't want to go on to the next book but is you know is a do you just okay so you finish this book I mean is it just a continuation are you going to go out and next write another novel would you ever consider writing a memoir for instance uh no not a memoir I don't think I would um I I really love writing fiction I love creating that world and looking right into the heads of other people I think fiction is uh a powerful tool for being able to get into the mind of other individuals and uh I'm kind of addicted to that process so you're you're going to stick with the novels, and I'm always curious because some people are people. You know, I've had uh, uh, novelists that I've interviewed, and that some some go back and you know they wanted to write a memoir, but they it was actually too frightening to do it, or they were afraid that they would expose themselves too much. So in writing the novel, they get a lot of all their personal stuff in and family stuff, but it's not necessarily it's not a memoir. It's you know defined as a novel. It's fiction, so it makes. Uh, them easier to tell it makes it easier for them to tell their story through a novel um, yeah I definitely think I, I would agree with 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 not wanting to kind of um, put my private life out there I think I'm quite a private person and uh, the thought of writing a book about myself and my family would be alarming but but also I, I, I certainly do feed in quite personal themes to my novels, so I, I make use of it. Use of it, but as you say, it's it's disguised. It's disguised as fiction. Well, it's disguised. But which novel would you say most reflects um, perhaps you and your own in, in your own personal life? Um, I suppose it would be what she knew and the character of Rachel, who is the mother of the child who goes missing. Um, I've not had a child go missing, but I have had a child um, diagnosed with cancer. So I know what it's like to live with the fear that you will never see your child again after a certain point. So I really made use of my own experience to try and bring her character to life and show the readers what she might be going through. 
I mean, that's probably one, you know, we were talking about crises and challenges. I would say that having your child diagnosed with cancer, and I don't know which one of your, your children that was, but that would be one of a the major, um, I would say, cri- a cr- crisis that a family has to go through um, and and get through. And obviously, I you, yeah, it's it certainly it certainly was for us. It came as as these things do. It came out of the blue. It was a bolt of lightning, and it changed everything for our family. And we were very fortunate because my son recovered and he's very well now. Um, but it it made me really think about how people's lives can be busted apart. You know, in a moment, um, whether that's through something like that or through crime and I think that's why I like crime fiction because crime can have a devastating effect on families yeah. just as disease and other problems can yeah I think you you know that, that that's so true and I think uh, sometimes for myself I'm always learning when is that going to happen uh, you know it's like we I sort of like uh, waiting for the what, the ball to drop um, which is not necessarily a good thing but um I, you know, and I don't want to focus on it too much, but um, um, it is kind of it is scary when those kinds of things happen. A couple minutes left because I want to make sure that obviously we can uh, ha- your book you can buy it at bookstores everywhere online. Uh, Odd Child Out is the name of the book, but also Gilly, where is, is there a website that we can go to that tells more about you, your book, and and what you're doing? A website, or maybe there are several. Yes, I have a website which is www.gillymacmillan.com and if you visit that, you can read about uh, my all my books, my first three books, which is Watching You, The Perfect Girl, and Odd Child Out, and they're all available now. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today and getting to know you, getting to know the novelist behind the book, and uh, I recommend that everybody go out, buy it, uh, Odd Child Out. Gilly McMillan, and, um, you know, we'll be waiting for your next novel. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-294. 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. 
Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417. Or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Marilyn Singleton. She's not only a doctor, she's a lawyer, a former congressional candidate, and our topic today is money, media, and medical care. Dr. Marilyn Singleton combines her experience as a board-certified anesthesiologist with her education in constitutional and administrative law to analyze the current healthcare environment, exposing the lobbyist interests of pharmaceutical companies and insurance providers. As a former congressional candidate in California, Dr. Singleton cares about the safety and health of the people. She graduated from Stanford University, UCSF Med School, and completed her anesthesia residency at Harvard's Beth Israel Hospital, and while working in the operating room, Dr. Singleton attended UC Berkeley Law School. She also teaches classes in the recognition of elder abuse and constitutional law for non-lawyers. Welcome to the show, Dr. Singleton. I am so glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, that is a very, very impressive resume of academics. I was telling somebody I was going to interview you this morning, and they were, wow, I mean, uh did you have time for anything else? I mean, you start uh, Harvard, Stanford, lawyer, doctor, um, and congressional and congressional candidate for uh, Congress. So, how do you get how do you get that all in? But that's um, maybe that's my first question. <laughs> I'll tell you. It seems all through life, it seems like the more you have to do, the more you get done, and uh, that. Seems kind of. I think I got that from my father, and it's kept me in good shape all through life, and somehow still managed to have a great husband and a fabulous son through all that. Well, well, I I guess I still stand in awe of you, and I I think um, I, I guess then given all that, why the focus, and and what made you decide to focus particularly obviously on this topic, money, media, and medical care, and because. Uh, uh, that is obviously something that's sort of in the forefront of all the political stuff that's happening today. So um, let's start talking about that. Money, media, what does that mean, money, media, and medical care? Um, I I think what started me on this is several years ago, I became so irritated with the direct-to-consumer ads from pharmaceutical companies. And... It was almost amusing when they're telling people, oh, and if you've had liver cancer or you have AIDS, tell your doctor and don't take this medicine. And I'm thinking, where are they going to get this medicine? And why aren't they seeing a doctor anyway? And why would you be advertising these very intense medicines directly to the consumer to try to get them to go to the doctor and beg for it and strong arm the doctor into giving it. I, I just found it odd. And the whole market saturation idea, it just sort of was sitting there in the back of my head. And then as all the healthcare reform and whatnot was coming out and you start to delve into it and see who was behind it, who was supporting it, who's gaining by it, you realize, or at least I felt, that at bottom wasn't really the patient, but who can make money off the new system. It wasn't that, isn't that a result of, well, they used to have ads on television for uh, alcohol and cigarettes, so they had to take, and those are big money makers, once they took those ads off, they had to replace it with something, or maybe this is too simplistic, but, and so now they replace it with these consumer ads for, uh, you know, lay people to go out and, or to make, to want to 
all the pharmaceuticals and and it's sort of and that's how they make their money. Well, that's right, and and it's certainly no criticism. They're supposed to be there to make money. I find it very odd, however, and wonder how much money do they make from using these ads. The saturation is unbelievable. There's 5,000 ads a month. And and when you imagine that, that that was as of April, last April, of uh, penetration of these sorts of ads. So these companies aren't stupid. They only do things that are going to net them some positive gain. And it must be working. But the problem is some of these medications, my goodness, do people really need them? And again, advertising cancer medicines and and immunosuppressives and whatnot, it seems somewhat bizarre. Wouldn't a person who needed cancer medications or immunosuppressives already be seeing a physician? And well, what happens, does Dr. Singleton, do people actually, when you're, I mean, because these ads are on all night long, particularly during, let's say, the dinner hour from six to nine. So do people, can they actually remember the names of these drugs? I mean, and and then go to their physician and say, well, I want this drug to because I have cancer or heart disease or, you know, gastroenteritis. Does it, is that how it, does that actually happen? That does indeed happen, and I'm an anesthesiologist, so fortunately, there's only a few things that people come in saying they heard about. Uh, An internist must just be barraged, and I've spoken to some, and they do say patients walk in, and I'll tell you something. One of the drug representatives had told me about drug names, uh, that, and one of the reasons they're named the way they are is the most popular letter to begin a drug with is Z or X. And then other names kind of are a takeoff on whatever the chemical name is, the true generic chemical name. And patients remember these things. And in the days of DVR, where almost everybody has that, all you do is pause the TV and jot down a little note. If you had any of these conditions, it's certainly worth a quick pause on the DVR, write down the name, and uh, take it into your doctor. Oh, I heard about this. Uh, And you'd just be surprised how, well, actually not surprised, you're in the media, how powerful the media really is. And uh, as, as a total entity, in influencing how we think. And um, people don't say, oh, I wonder what the chemical compound is or anything like that. It's a name. The people in the ad are frolicking and, and smiling and look very healthy. So I can look that way too. Let me, let me tell my doctor I want this medication. So what's the doctor's responsibility? What do they do? Like, they're, you know, the, the drug companies are, are uh, selling drugs to, to lay people, and then they go in and tell their doctor, I want this drug that begins with a Z or an X. What is the, I mean, does the doctor have to respond to that, or do they, are they being sold the same bill of goods from the drug reps on the other side? Certainly, doctors are learning about these drugs, and there's other ways other than the rep to learn about it, and more and more people are certainly reading articles, and just because a drug is advertised doesn't mean that it is not good. Jardiance, for example, is um, many internists love it, and on its own merits, having nothing to do with the constant ads about it. So some of these drugs are indeed good. It what it does, in my opinion, giving, given that doctor visits are becoming shorter and shorter, that do you really want the entire visit being taken up with the doctor having to explain why drug X is not the drug for you? It's great on the actor on TV, but in your particular circumstance, this is not the drug for you, and yes, you have psoriasis, and yes, that drug may help some people with psoriasis, 
but I've been treating you for 15 years and the particular variety of this problem you have is not one that responds to that drug. Okay, I just had to take up a minute and a half of my precious seven-minute visit versus being able to come out and say, over the years I've been treating you, I've been evaluating all the things that pop on and off the market, and this is what I believe is best for you. End of story, get the prescription. Got it. So, oh, yeah. you know, it, and it's something that can undermine the trusted relationship. And patients will leave. I remember when poor Michael Jackson overdosed on the propofol. Well, that's a staple of anesthesia. All these people are coming in. Am I going to die? Well, guess what? It's an anesthetic drug in the hands of skilled deliverers of that drug, not some poor, sad fool who's opening up an IV bottle on himself. And, you know, they didn't want it. Don't give me the Michael Jackson drug. Yet, so people are influenced by what they see. And here's another example that you give. Uh, you talk about the current opioid problem uh, is an example of how we are, how the kinds of medications that we get are dictated by 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 money uh, rather than by maybe our medical condition. Let's talk about that. Oh. This, this is something that's, that's truly sad, is many medications are cheap, and I mean very, very inexpensive. Drugs that have been around a long time, uh, hydrochlorothiazide for blood pressure, very, very inexpensive. It's, it's like the cost of an aspirin, a generic aspirin. And that, unfortunately, is true of opiates. They're cheap to make. It's a cheap chemical compound. And for the insurance company, if you're saying, oh, let's give you drug X that has lower potential for addiction but is more costly, hasn't come out in generic yet because it's newer and people have been working on trying to have a non-addictive drug and whatnot, the insurer may not approve that. And whereas they will quickly approve a standard opiate. So guess what prescription is going to get written? And again, I can't tell you the difficulty in trying to go outside the formulary of these insurance plans. And you wonder, who are these people who are doing the reviews and what it takes for you to get all the way up to the physician level that you start off with a clerk and say, oh, well, that's not on the formulary. Well, this patient needs it because, and go through the reasons the other things don't work. Well, why don't you try that? Well, I have tried it. Well, we'll let you try it for five more times. I mean, you can imagine. So... It, it becomes futile, and here the fellow has X number of patients in the office, and it's getting frustrating. You have to call during business hours. They certainly don't have an after-hours doctor's line for folks to do it after they've seen their patients. And so it ends up, well, I'll write this script, and I'll write it for fewer pills or whatever, and, and I guess there won't be a problem. So we're all human, and, we're, and we don't live in a vacuum. And when people say, oh, don't write those prescriptions, that's the end of the opiate epidemic. Well, there's more to the story than that. So in other words, the way you're describing it would seem to me most doctors or physicians don't have the time to do what you've been talking about. I mean, they're not just not going to do that. So they... I don't know if give up is the word, but I guess they do, right? And they're prescribing these these opioids that patients don't really need or shouldn't shouldn't have. Well, part of the problem is, and it's not even giving up the length of time. Sometimes it takes four weeks to get through to the level that you have to to get your appeal heard by an appropriate voice. Well, what you're 
patient supposed to do for that four weeks while you're waiting for the appeal process? So, you know, even if you decided to devote your life to being on the telephone, it still is a time-consuming process. And that certainly is by design, in my view, because we all know if you have to take a long time to do something, in the old days when it was really difficult to return items, people just said, oh, forget it, unless it was a very expensive item. And that's how it is dealing with some of these insurers that just beat you down, beat you down, beat you down. And by the time you get it approved, the patient has whatever problem the patient has sitting there getting worse, so you have to do something. So what do we as consumers do? I mean, is there any recourse for us? I mean, you know, we can sit and blame the insurance companies and we can sort of place the blame on everybody. But I think you sort of pointed out uh, that, or you have pointed out that uh, maybe we have to take a look at some of our rules and regulations and our congressmen and women, and uh, maybe they can do something about it. That's right. There's so many ways that we as consumers can use our power. And in fact, there is a fellow running for Congress in San Diego who part of his shtick is that he will put whatever bill is being put in front of him and he's going to put it to the constituents and he has he's going to have an online poll type thing and the people can vote. Do they want it or do they not want it? And he says, we'll vote the way the constituents vote. And this is something that certainly is happening less and less in Congress where the parties are so partisan and they only vote with their party and not necessarily what their constituents want or are the constituents even asked. So we have to be demanding of our representatives. And on a personal level, we have to look at medical options. More and more and more basic care is being done in the direct pay mode. (laughs) Excuse me. And one of the things where we can meld changing the laws in Washington plus getting in to the direct pay mode is making sure that the laws about health savings accounts and allowing catastrophic plans to be sold to anyone, not just people under the age of 30 or somebody with a special exemption, that are true, very inexpensive, high-deductible plans that realistically... For the most part of your life, most people aren't sick. One or two things may happen. They'll have a child and they may fall off a ladder and break their leg. Because looking at auto accidents and whatnot, your auto insurance will take care of the medical bills for that. And direct pay practices have incredibly low prices doctor visits for $50, things that if you set this aside, and my husband and I actually worked out the Starbucks coffee rule and add up all the money people spend on Starbucks coffee that you could easily pay for these things out of pocket and eliminate the middleman. You could get the drug, the exact drug that your doctor wanted to give you without a full song and dance. And there is no question that insurance is a good thing when it is insurance, insurance for unexpected events, not for day-to-day taking care of your life. That's what we need to do, and we need to focus on ourselves. So you say find, so what you're saying is, do do you find a direct pay medical practice? Uh, Because I know I have uh, here an example of uh, selfpaypatient.com. Yes. Yeah. And and that's just one example. And there's various websites and you can Google direct pay practices or direct primary care. And there's various sites people sign up for. And the doctor posts their prices, and uh, 
there's maps, there's another one called thewedge.com, and you click on the doctor's office, you learn about the doctor's office, all the prices are posted, some of the simple labs are done in-house, the the typical panel that a doctor might get, $13, and then in the direct pay system, the doctors have... uh, partnerships with pathology labs, radiology labs, where instead of the CAT scan being $2,000, which part of that money goes to pay all the middlemen involved in the business office who has to write up the uh, claim form, et cetera, that when it just goes direct, CAT scans can be $300. So if a person is disciplined, And for all the money you'd save in the high premiums and you just set that aside for your catastrophic deductible and some day-to-day issues, you'd come out ahead. You know, some of this, I I feel like I I really am hearing it for the first time, and I imagine a lot of other people as well. So I assume this is something that you are, uh, I mean, you are on the bandwagon for. Are there other people working with you to, you know, I mean, yes, you're on the radio and you have public appearances. Are there groups that are uh, part of this agenda? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, uh, on their website, it's aapsonline.com, uh, that there's actually a place patients can click on, and there's probably about 1,500 doctors on there that are direct pay doctors. There's an organization called um, Docs for Patient Care, and it's been working on this issue for years, and it's sole focus is having direct pay primary care. And there's various models where a family can pay $50 a month, just a flat fee, and then they get everything they need for the $50 a month. And individuals usually is about half of that. And uh, there's all sorts of ways various folks have pulled their practices together. But one of the things that people realize and why there's doctors starting to come on board for this model, which is amusing because that's the old-fashioned way to do it. Uh, Back when my father was living and practicing and you charge people what they could afford and really know the patients and if they've fallen on hard times, you let it go, knowing that they'll come back with something else or Doing it on a sliding scale. We only have 30 seconds left, so. <laughs> so, uh, this is, this is, it's out there, and doctors are trying to fill a need that patients have. Patients want a trusted relationship, and they really don't want a lot of middlemen in there. And it's up to us to seek these things out, and you'd be amazed at the positive results. Well, Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and we've been talking about money, media, and medical care. Lots of good information. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 